This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Professor Ward Scott here in the Warthog Manly Man Cave. And we're in the Mellon Law Studio, the only official Mellon Law law firm partner of the University of Florida Gators and protected by crime prevention, 24-7-365, locally owned. Have them be your security team. And welcome to all our sponsors, our new sponsor, Allstate Insurance, Judy Locasio. So today is kind of a, this is going to be class, students. I recommend you take notes and I recommend you Sort of tune in to what I got to say because I don't, I know you won't hear it anywhere else in America. I don't know any other talk show hosts who are professors and have done it for a long, long time and have been a voracious reader and uh, always looking to get to the bottom of things. I'm going to share a little bit of that with you today, hopefully, help you understand the story behind the stories which are. The stories that make up often the news headlines. And the news headlines are derived from very surface understanding of the long, long series of stories behind the moment. If you can follow all that, and hopefully you can. Let me see if I can pick up my own show here with a feed so I can see who's in the chat line. Yes, sir. Good morning, good morning, Ken. Ken, I think you'll like today's class. Um, Brenda Dolwick, thanks so much for supporting us. Um, I'm going to start, I'm going to call today's show The Paper War. Hello, Jim. Uh, I'm going I'm to call today's show The Paper War. And I think by the time I'm through going through what I'm going to present in today's presentation in today's class, I think you'll understand why I call today's show the paper war. I'm going to begin, as I usually do, with local. I'm going to bring, uh, 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 begin with the latest shooting in downtown Gainesville. Now, let me give you a history of downtown Gainesville. And some of whom I'm speaking right now, you already know this history, but fewer and fewer people know the history. Once upon a time, as we like to say in the storytelling world, downtown Gainesville was a town square. And Stocks Men's Store, Chitty, a lot of different stores right around the square. That's where people came to do business, Woolworths, all these stores, Chestnuts, a um, bunch of things going on downtown. Or 
Motor Company, Keter Motor Company, Sean Keter Motor Company, Firestone, everything downtown. And then along came, of course, the interstate. And suddenly, nobody wanted to be downtown. Everything was moving west to pick up the river of commerce, is one way to look at it, that would be coming forever and ever, ceaselessly, endlessly, and ever increasingly, down Interstate 75. And so it became a mall called the Oaks Mall. I remember the day I was riding west on University Avenue out in the country, going towards the interstate, looked over to my left, and an oak forest was being bulldozed down. And I thought of those oak trees, those giant original oak trees in Florida, as elephants, kind of just toppled by hunters because they were that massive and they were of the kind of presence of elephants with their size and bulk. And Mike's bookstore, yes. I'm going to get to Mike's bookstore in a minute. And of course, Lillian's music store, which has a story in a moment. So Cox Furniture. So I said, wow, what is going on there? Because I was a young guy then, relatively speaking, and paid a little attention to the city developments. And it turned out, of course, it was Mr. Squatari's Oaks Mall. Well, suddenly there was a dearth of activity in what had been downtown Gainesville. And there was a lot of talk about the historical section of downtown Gainesville, which is in Northeast, right off of university there, perishing. And I became one of the founding members of the Historical Society. And I invested in downtown Gainesville, in historic Gainesville, and bought property there and developed property there to help keep that world in our lives. It wasn't easy to do. There was people who wanted to bulldoze everything old down and and make it uh, new. But we sort of prevailed on that. Kept it going. And I had a good friend who had bought property downtown and who realized that, you know, some of these buildings down there could be had, as he said, for Eisenhower rates. And I remember going with him, came by because I lived downtown. I remember him coming by about midnight. And he said, I've got to figure out where I want to put a bar. I said, bar? Really? What do you mean? Well, he says, I know a bar that's going out of business in New Orleans. Man, I can get all of this fantastic stuff out of this New Orleans bar for a song and a dance. But I got to figure out where to put it. 
what to do with it. And I'm thinking downtown Gainesville needs a cool bar. Come go with me. Let's ride around and look at property. So midnight, we went out and scouted around. And I remember we went in a carriage house, an old carriage house on 12 East First Avenue. Just a carriage house. Which eventually became 12 East, the restaurant. Which then eventually became the Sovereign. But around the corner, as Mr. Murphy just met a moment ago, was Mike's bookstore. And next to it was Lillian's music store. Actual music store. Well, my friend had the keys to that. So he said, you know, I could connect this room through a passageway to that carriage house over there on the other side and have a New Orleans-style restaurant at 12 East and have a bar here on South Main. Well, not Main, South First. So he and I went in, and there it was, sure enough, there's all the music sheets and all the old instruments, and it was all dusty. Why was it there for a song and a dance? Because nobody was coming downtown. Everybody was enamored with going out west to the malls and shopping there. You could get the buildings downtown if you could figure out something to do with them. Or really, a cent on a dollar, so to speak. And it was risky. Building a bar downtown, nobody had a bar downtown. Nobody had a restaurant downtown. Everything was going out west. So we went in and we looked around. And he says, I think this would make a great bar. He said, I can bring all this stuff out of this bar in New Orleans and we can make this bar here. He said, but what am I going to call this place? And it's a little known fact. And I'm going to tell you now publicly. that I turned to my friend and said, listen. You've already got a sign out there. That says Lillian's Music Store. Just. Call this place Lillian's and use that sign. So yours truly here named Lillian's Music Store, which became the quote-unquote watering hole downtown. And buddy, were there battles to fight. Wanted to put an awning across the sidewalk with gas lights. The gas lines were still hooked up. No, no, no. The modern mind would not let that happen. It was incredible trying to create an atmosphere downtown that was really unique to 
really a simulation of New Orleans. So with investors and creativity and courage and all the above, a few of us invested in downtown because we felt that Gainesville needed a center to it. Gainesville needed a place that was original Gainesville. And we worked hard to keep the post office, a magnificent building. And we kept it and it became the Hippodrome. And we tried to turn downtown into a place where there was truly an art of living, an art of conversation, sit on the sidewalk and talk, have a beverage or a meal, on the bricks, literal bricks on the pavements, and keep this ambiance. And then, of course, Cox Furniture became, now, of course, the restaurant it is, That was a big deal because we were able to pull that money out of Jacksonville. So people began to see that if we pulled together, created a historical society, created a downtown business organization, and then the next biggie was, and Ray Stern, you're absolutely correct, we begged them not to de- destroy the courthouse. That was too late. Beautiful courthouse. The next big thing is we needed a big investor to come downtown and really think big. And I got to tell you that my vote on the Historical Society was the deciding vote to bring Ken McGurn, Ken and Linda McGurn. And we had to give tax breaks. And I said, that's okay. That's a deal. If they want to take it on, we got to support them. So there was that type of imagination, courage, and money that came. And it began to be stitched together. And began to be kind of the place to be. Now, Fast forward, my friends. I'm I'm talking mid-70s, late 60s, when the creativity and the projects were started in the late 60s and became incredibly flourishing all the way up into the 90s. You just had to be there. That was the place to be. Everybody in this community knows those places. And now, I got to confess to you, of course, I'm older. I don't go downtown. I'm not going downtown. I'm not going downtown and park at night in a cavernous parking garage 
and bless Ken McGurn for building it. Too dangerous. I'm not going down to visit those places. Too dangerous. And the problem is, it's getting worse. Now, one time when it started, we put mounted police down there, just like in New Orleans. We had a horseback GPD police force. I guess that's no longer. But when you see cops on horses, why you're looking at something that is formidable. You got cops on bicycles. The cops on horses. And you didn't mess with those cops. Part of my life was in New Orleans. I used to tell people when they come to New Orleans from Mardi Gras, do not mess with these New Orleans cops. They will mess you up because they have to control this place. They will mess you up. If you cross their police lines, you can expect some rough treatment. Tough dudes. That's all changed now. The cop is the bad guy and the good, the bad guy is the good guy. Come on. And we got no mounted patrol that I know of. Maybe I'm missing it because I haven't been down there. And now let me tell you, it's just not guns, okay? It's drugs and also prostitution. I have been briefed by some people who shall remain anonymous on some of the organizations that are in this community that are gang-run have their own websites, which I will not go to. I will not tell you the name of them. Where you will see the women, their gang masters. And these sites have pictures that have secret codes in them. The tattoos mean something. And it's all over this community. A California sheriff, for example, I ran across this in the, in the, in the Washington Examiner. What is, and a California sheriff is dead on. What is the reason for the rising crime in his state, in San Francisco and places like this? The same reason for the rising crime here. It's not the guns. It's the substance abuse. It's the permissive drug laws. And the so-called mental counseling, which doesn't ever occur. 
right? In the shootings that this California sheriff talks about, whether the suspect is shooting at them or they're shooting at the suspect, it's almost always about drug use. So says the California sheriff. Bianco, Sheriff Bianco, Sheriff Chad Bianco, the Riverside County Sheriff. He said the majority of drug abuse is methamphetamine, heroin, or alcohol combined with marijuana. He says that the statistics fall on deaf ears. Nobody wants to hear about it. The California lawmakers refuse to have any type of dialogue that has anything to do with fact or statistics because the fact and the statistics show what's behind it. And often, of course, it's involved with race. And so you can't besmirch the race, which is involved with the drugs, which is involved with the prostitution, which is involved with the guns, which is involved, of course, with kids who don't go to school. The sheriff says that more than 70% of people shot by police in San Bernardino County over six years exhibited signs of drug use. That rate was twice as high in Los Angeles County. This is a little known fact. Americans spend more on legal cannabis than they do on chocolate and beer. About 35% of state prisoners reported using drugs when they committed a violent offense. This is according to a survey conducted by the Bureau of Justice Statistics. For property crimes, 49% of the inmates reported using drugs during property crimes. Sheriff Bianco says almost all crime can be traced back to some type of a drug. And that includes gang shootings, human trafficking, robberies, and burglaries. They're either committed while on drugs or they were committed for drugs. Many of the previously taboo classifications for drugs have been downgraded as crimes from felonies to misdemeanors. So the sheriff is complaining that if we do identify the drug user, the drug user's crime is no longer a felony 
rather a misdemeanor. And ironically, the way the laws are set up, it makes it more difficult to put people in drug treatment programs as if they wanted to go. Consequently, the size of this growing economy among the kids has led to more and more violent crime, not just more crime in general, but more violent crime among the kids. And the sheriff wanted to be sure that everybody understood that it's not the lawyer who smokes weed on the weekends or goes home and smokes a joint, or it's not the casual smoker of marijuana who has been recreational marijuana smoker and who's still highly functional. That's not the population, the sheriff says. We law enforcement people are dealing with, huh? Now that's all across America because I have been briefed on that by people here in this community who are can't mention who they are, but they are on the law enforcement side of the aisle. No, I have this show. Have called me up and had me come by and sit down with them and look at these computers to see these places where all this is organized over the Internet. And I won't give you the sites and I won't uh, tell you who the guys were who shared it with me. But it is pervasive throughout the community. And it's not going to get any better, even in their opinion. And they're very frustrated because of the classification and the judicial system that turnstiles these people back out. who conduct their justice on the street. Just this case right near, of course, the place I named years ago in the late 60s that became a very popular watering hole. And, of course, just right there near the Hippodrome. It's a story that older people can tell who've been in this community for a long time. And I'm just telling you from memory, there are many, many, many chapters to this story. Many chapters. But what has happened, alarmingly, is that the crime downtown has become more and more dangerous, more and more serious. And it's not as if because I'm on the Crime Stoppers board. It's not as if the cops don't know who these people are. And often, and you can go to wardscottfiles.com, our website, and see that we're linked to Crime Stoppers. And you can see the faces of these people. 
many of whom are only caught because of brave people who turn in a tip. It's not an easy calculation. And it's not easy once you catch them. I sit there on the board of Crime Stoppers and listen to the rap sheets of these guys who are caught. It ain't their first rodeo. And it won't be their last. And it's frustrating. Now, this is a community. You all are adults. You live in it. You've got to participate in it. I don't know what the answer is. But it's not particularly pretty. We got one of my good buddies here, a former ASO sheriff here watching. Sheriff deputy. You know, it's gotten worse. You're getting to the place where you keep looking over your shoulder, even in traffic. So that's uh, my little memory of the development decline, the the rise and fall of downtown Gainesville. And I don't see anything turning it around. We put the Chamber of Commerce down there. We tried that. We got the library down there, but the library is not all that welcoming. We've always gone back and forth on the times that the bars close. And the joke is the only time the students vote is when all of a sudden the closing of the bar interrupts their nightlife. As my good buddy Steve Spurrier says, nothing good happens after midnight. These guys don't even go out till midnight. I'm going to forestall my bottom of the hour break just for a moment. To read to you by Ben Chapman in the Wall Street Journal a few days ago. That the eighth grade scores in history and civics are at a record low. And I can tell you, if you look at some of these youth that are involved in crime, they checked out easily by the eighth grade. Only 13% of eighth graders, now this is nationwide, meet proficiency standards for U.S. history. Meaning they could explain major themes, periods, events, people, ideas, and turning points in the country's history. Um, About a fifth of students scored at or above the proficient See level in civics. Now, here are some of the questions. At the time Columbus arrived in the Americas, most of the area that is now called Mexico was controlled by people called Aztecs, Apache, Iroquois, Inuit, 
A lot of adults might not be able to answer that. Second question is, which of the following is an example of people using power without having the right to do so? A, a police officer arrests someone because the person looks suspicious. B, a governor vetoes a bill passed by the state legislature. Or C, a group of people against nuclear power march outside a nuclear power plant. Or D, the owner of a newspaper prints her own opinions in the newspaper. Those are not necessarily easy questions, even for adults. The average score in 2022 for eighth grade students in U.S. history was 258 out of a possible 500. Five points lower than in 2018. And one point lower than the average U.S. history score in 1994 which was the first year the test was given. The average civic score for eighth grade students in 2022 was 150 out of a possible 300, two points lower than in 2018, and identical to the average score in 1998. And there's more in here, that, uh, but you get the point. So we've got students that are dropping out of knowledge in school about that age and joining the joining the gangs and beginning to conduct their profession on the streets. And we are in the way. When we go downtown to have a meal. We'll be right back on the Ward Scott Files and give you the weather. Stay tuned. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. 
What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth. All bees poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. Ward Scott Files with Ward's Weather Report brought to you by Lewis Oil. My golly, fossil fuel. What's wrong with that? Well, we got a uh, maybe going to nudge up to 90 today. Hopefully, we get a little rain. Haven't done the naked rain dance, so I can't guarantee it. But uh, it's a little bit cloudy here in the Piney Woods in north central Florida. And perhaps there might be some rain out there. We got our fingers crossed because we need it badly. Um, there's a funny law. If you will, I don't think it, I don't know if funny is the right word, but in Volusia County, Florida, there is a proposed law known as a stupid motorist law. This caught my attention. I thought it was interesting. It's a, consider, under consideration by officials in Volusia County, Florida. Volusia County, I think, is Daytona Beach. That would levy a hefty fine. And the reason is to deter drivers from attempting to cross flooded roadways during severe weather. Now, this law has already been enacted in several other states, including Arizona, Texas, and Ohio, and allows law enforcement to find motorists who drive around barriers and get stuck in floodwaters or need to be rescued once they're in there. So I guess in Volusia County, there's been several instances of motorists becoming stranded and requiring rescue uh, because of driving through flooded roadways in the county. And this puts not only the drivers at risk, but also the emergency responders who have to come and drag them out. So isn't that interesting? It is a proposed, who knows, it might go, it might be enacted. If if enacted, the law would only be enforced during a declared state of emergency in the county. So law enforcement officers would then have the power to make a case-by-case decision, citing and finding drivers who go around road barriers during floods without a good reason. A monetary fine could go up as high as $2,000 for people who break this law. What do you know? If you're down there in Volusia County, buddy, you better watch yourself if you start trying to drive through around a barrier and you get stuck and you need to be hauled out by the cops. That's not going to fly. You know, um, Education is a weak link in all this. We just showed that. Um, And I'm one of the guys who thinks that education should be much more militaristic in the high school world, maybe even in the college in some instances. Now, Brooke Allen did something that a friend of mine did, and I did a little bit of, and that was teaching a prison. The prison here locally for us was, of course, Rayford. Um, I would go and tutor guys at Rayford 
I didn't have a formal classroom. My a friend was an actual former formal instructor inside a classroom in Rayford. Had a wonderful experience because, no pun intended, you have a captive audience that really wants to learn. Now, Brooke Allen has written about this in the Wall Street Journal and says that um, as a teacher, Brooke Allen thinks uh, that more classes should be conducted uh, as if they were really programs in a prison and gives the reasons why. Um, It's uh, a a group of people who are highly motivated and are hardworking and they want to learn and they're not going anywhere and they know to get out of there. Oh, they've got to better themselves. And so they have an opportunity to better themselves And so they tend to read, according to Alan, each assignment two or three times before coming to class. They take notes. Some of them have been incarcerated, Alan writes, for 20 or 30 years and have been reading books all that time. They could even hold their own graduate seminar, Alan says. They've had rough experiences out in the real world, and they're less liable. This is an interesting point to fall prey to these facile ideologies. Isn't that an irony? You can pass off one of these phony ideologies to a, quote, free college kid, and the gullible, quote, free college kid will swallow that hook, line, and sinker. You try doing that on a savvy, incarcerated person, huh? Let me tell you a story. I had a 19-year-old student who was on parole from the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. And the reason he was kind of let out for a while was because he was so smart and so young, they didn't feel the authorities that Really, they should keep the kid there, but they should give him a chance. So he was in federal prison because he was a courier. He would drive stolen cars. And, of course, in the trunk, he'd pull double duty. He'd have bales of marijuana. And he would, of course, how he got federal time is he crossed the state lines. And he caught caught crossing a state line. And I asked him, I said, how come you got casual? He said, well, I was just so stoned on the product, I didn't really know I'd run the stop sign. So he finds himself in the federal penitentiary, and they say, well, let's send him down to Scott. Because I had a reputation for being able to handle tough kids. Now he, they sent him through the Santa Fe College system to my class, and I signed up to take him. Now, one of the reasons I know how to handle kids like this is I held a record number of nights detention in my high school. I was in trouble all the time. I was 15 years old when I was a senior. And part of the reason I was in trouble is I had to fight to keep the bullies from messing with me, and I always would fight at the drop of a hat. I learned that right away. You want to keep them away from you, 
you 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 don't take any you don't take any crap. Well, I got you know I got I wound up in the in the, in the detention halls, and then of course my father sent me to military school. Where ironically I loved it. It was so disciplined, and so I, I had a reputation for knowing how to handle these guys. And this kid came, and I integrated him into a class of regular students. They didn't know who he was, and one day. It leaked out somehow, some way, among the quote unquote regular students, that among them was a federal inmate. And I don't know, somehow, some way they found out who it was. And they started kind of ganging up on him. I kind of stood back and let that happen because I knew that kid could handle himself. I didn't know how he was going to do it. And so they were saying, hey, what are you doing? You know, you this, that, one, another. And he said something I'll never forget. 19 years old now. He said, you don't have to worry about me. I'm one little criminal. They know where I am all the time. They can come along and Pick me up on the street corner. What you got to worry about is criminals when they get in a crowd. Now you take Congress. Wow. I have never heard. I taught 40 years. I have never heard an insight like that from a quote free student. What you hear from those type of students is all this crap all too often, not always, but all too often, that has been pumped into their heads by their equally naive teachers. I'm glad I was on the wrong side of the tracks for a while. I learned a hell of a lot there. A hell of a lot. I learned that roses are not necessarily red and, you know, you got to look behind things. Some guys get away with stuff that they shouldn't get away with, and some guys get blamed for stuff they didn't do. But I'm not saying that they're not, shouldn't be held responsible. Don't get me wrong. If you did the crime, you do the time. I went to the detention hall. But these guys, isn't that ironic? This teacher says, well, you can't feed them a line of bull because they know a bull story when they hear it. They're often very open, she said, to the approach, Alan said, I don't know if it's a he or she, very open to other ideas, unlike university students. They are 
curious because they know the institutions are not necessarily bastions of justice. So my student, I learned something unfortunate. I had my student under what I thought was a pretty good example of behavior to emulate. That's go to school, better yourself. And one of the things I learned from the student was they have a knack for finding other people like them. I learned that people like to hang out with people like them. They don't necessarily want inclusion unless it's their particular people. I remember in sitting in my office one day, this 19-year-old student of mine appearing at the door with a young female, very pretty. And he wanted me to meet her. And the reason he wanted me to meet her is because, as he said, look at her. She can't tell time. Really? Where in the world did you all meet? I didn't get into that. She can't tell time. I had one other student, by the way, this student has an unfortunate ending. He did end up violating his parole. Went back to prison. He's probably a career guy in prison. I don't know if he's still alive or not. I had another student that I went to Rayford to help. I remember I used to tutor him in the barber shop at the forgotten what they call it now, university, uh, uh, not not yet um, the. the uh, where you go in and you get you get processed. Anyway, not in the big prison, but in the, in the barbershop, Jason to it. He would sit in one chair and I'd sit in another chair. And here's what he had done. The authorities at Rayford had contacted me and said, this guy is a professional bank robber. He's been in here 14 years. But he is writing a novel that nobody here at this institution can any longer help him with because it's so good. We want to know if you'll take it up and help him. I said, okay. So I wrote up to Rayford And 
we sat and talked. And his work was really, really good. He had a technical problem that he didn't know how to fix. I didn't really know how to fix it either, but he was writing a novel told from the first person point of view about being a robber, professional robber. And he was his partner, and he were the two characters. And boy, is it well detailed, absolutely believable, how they find their victims. What they do when they rob people, they, they would find them in restaurants, follow them home, surprise them. You know, they rob the wealthy. And so this novel was eerily accurate. But the narrator was the passive one of the partnership. The other partner, the other person, was the more aggressive part of the partnership. So there was an aggressive partner who dominated the weak partner, who was the storyteller. And lots of times, the storyteller, passive weaker of the two, would be reluctant to do a particular job but the aggressive part would say, no, no, we can do that. And so the weaker would be dominated by the stronger and would go along with it. I'll never forget a scene where the two of them had identified a victim, a man who was obviously profiled as affluent, and they followed him home surprised him in his garage and the aggressive of the two pulled a gun when the man realized he was being robbed he reached inside his jacket the aggressive of the two partners pulled his gun preparing to shoot him if this man had a gun and the narrator, the weaker of the two, said, no, 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 don't. He has heart trouble. He is reaching for his heart medicine. And the aggressive guy backs off and listens to the weaker, passive guy. You read on a little farther in this book because you can't put it down. Because you're inside the criminal mind. And you realize that there are not two characters. There is only one. And that one character is made up of these two people. And that one character is wrestling with these two people. One, the hard criminal, and the other, the reasonable sort of civilian. And at that point, he didn't know how to take the novel farther. 
Well, you know, I thought I saw the last of him. Well, guess what? They paroled him from Rayford. He showed up in my fiction writing class. He was by far the smartest guy in the class. They didn't know who he was. And I remember there was a young kid in there who wrote a story about something that, and one of the characters got shot. And afterwards, around the desk, the student was up there asking me, I said, well, the details are not credible. In other words, the kid had never been shot. He was trying to figure this out from some movie he'd seen. He had, and this prisoner who was standing there on parole, the kid didn't know who he was, said to the young man, that's not the way you react when you get shot. And he said to the young man, I was shot running away one time, and the bullet hit me in the back of my hand. And the only way I knew I'd been shot is I couldn't stop my arm from windmilling around and around and around from the force of the bullet striking my hand. Fantastic moment. Unfortunately, that writer also wound up robbing a bank, even though we had gotten him out, and going back to prison. And I don't know what's happened thereafter. Those are my stories today. Have a great day. We're all command center out.